Golazzo is brought to you by ThoughtMob, the essential app for your matchday experience. Get live scores, detailed match stats, notifications for every goal and breaking news from more than 200 leagues and cups around the world. Download it for free on Android and iOS now by searching for ThoughtMob. That's F-O-T-M-O-B. Never miss a moment with ThoughtMob. Muddy News Media. Today on Golanzo, it's part two of our journey into the unique world of the ultra. With the good as well as the bad and the ugly from Italy's ultra culture. Hello listener, the second part of our look into the parallel world of the Italian ultra. With us we have Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. James Horncastle. Hello. And on the line once again from Panama, Tobias Jones, author of Ultra. Now, we talked already about the origins of the Ultra groups, how they're following and made them attractive to political forces and also to organised crime and how the Ultras wield their power. We'll get on to uh, some of the positives that the Ultras bring uh, to the world of football and society in general, but that's in a bit. First of all, let's take a trip to Turin for a story which really illustrates the strange bedfellows at the heart of the ultra movement. In 2016, under a bridge just outside the city of Turin, the body of Raffaello Bucci was found in an apparent suicide. Bucci was a former supporter liaison officer at Juventus and a former member of the Juventus ultra group, the Drugi. A few days before his death, he'd been interviewed by police over links between the Drugi with the Calabrian Mafia, the Ndrangheta. Tobias, anyone who's watched much Juve, especially at the old Delhi Alpi, will know the name Drugi from the banners, the clockwork orange imagery. Can you tell us a little bit more about them as a group? Yeah, they... Um... They came to to the fore really in the in the late eighties, early nineties. The fighters that were one of the historical Juventus groups were were in decline for a number of reasons, and the Drugi were like a lot of ultra groups made a big play of their sort of their strength. You know, as you mentioned, the the name comes from the Drugs, the the thugs of the clockwork orange and they were very you know openly right wing so if you go to their headquarters in turin they'll they have like a lot of these ultra groups do huge posters and busts of mussolini and they for a long time were sort of fighting for supremacy with other ultra groups in in turin so tradizione um, bravi ragazzi but they were one of the first groups to begin to make a huge amount of money from ticket touting. Um, so we were talking last time about that sort of grey area between the owners of the clubs and the ultra groups and how they tried to, how some of the owners tried to curry favour with these groups and keep them well behaved and on side. And one of the easiest ways was to slip them 100 tickets for each game. And obviously, if you're a club of Juventus's size and importance, 100 tickets, or it's often more than that, you can sell them for a, 
a huge, a huge price. You know, in the police report, some of the the tickets were being sold for six hundred euros for Champions League games. Times that by hundred, you can see that actually the the profits it was possible to make were not only massive. The penalties that went along with ticket touting were negligible, which is why organised crime started to look at ultra groups and think here we can make a lot of money with almost none of the risks associated with drug dealing. The wife of the leader of the Bravi Ragazzi, another ultra group, said that her husband after each home game would bring home 30,000 euros. Um, So that's every fortnight, you know, every home game. So the figures were huge. So the, the drugi evolved into something very different. I can understand somebody, you know, in their 20s, especially in Italy, where, as you know, like, it's a country of eternal youth and people live at home and are bankrolled by mom and dad, you know, for a long, long time. And, and so you can be a full-time ultra and you can go and, you know, travel to away games and, you know, spend half your life hanging out at the... Uh, at, at the ultra headquarter and, and working on choreographies or whatever. But at some point, you know, you hit your 30s and maybe you start a family and maybe your parents don't want you at home anymore and you need to, you know, you you need to start paying bills and kind of like real life sets in. And as you know, real life sets in much later for us Italians because we're magical that way. I think what you see in a lot of places is there's a natural turnover in these groups because people grow up, they get older, they're not as good at fighting or whatever, unless they magically can make a living off it, like Diabolik at Lazio, or indeed like these guys. And I mean, I was struck by how many of these people, in addition to the fact that they seem to be all be from Calabria, but how many of these people were all, you know, these were people in their 40s and 50s, some of them. And do you then necessarily need to have a sideline where you're either ticket touting or or dealing drugs or 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 whatever. I mean, is that the only way you can kind of sustain this? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that the average age, I can't remember the precise figures, but the the average age of ultras was you know mid-teens in the in the early seventies. And if you look at it now, it's a lot of middle-aged, the other side of middle-aged men. Um, it's the same people. They all just grew up. Yeah, they all got older. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So it goes from being this very spontaneous, exuberant youth movement to a sort of a very hierarchical body. I mean, the ways of making money are are endless and ticket touting is just one of them. It's the sort of the concession for car parking outside the stadium. It's the it's the burger concession outside the stadium. It's all these sort of fringe things, the merchandising, all those things play into it. But the evolution of groups that you you alluded to, I find fascinating. The sort of the way in which, you know, a leader can be deposed. And it's often because they go to prison and they're they're not there and someone else comes to the fore. And one of the great controversies about the famous Tessera del Tifos or the, you know, the loyalty card that was introduced as an attempt to take on the ultras, one of the great controversies of that and stadium bans, the defida, is that ultras feel that police are using the stadium ban to sort of bring through young blood that might be more sort of amenable to <laughs> to sort of police, you know, nudging and so it becomes it becomes a, a sort of a strategic instrument through which the police can 
can say, yeah, this is the, this is the, the lad we want as the new leader of this group. And, and that's where the Bucci story becomes really interesting because the whole philosophy of being an ultra is that you never talk to the police. You know, that's why the famous Roma Bologna friendship broke down because, you know, allegedly one of them went to the police. Bucci actually was a police informant. He had a deal with the secret services in which he was passing information on not only, you know, far right extremist groups, but on people who were later revealed to be organised criminals. So, I mean, I think he did clearly commit suicide, but whether, you know, there were other things that sort of instigated him to, mm. to suicide, as they say in Italian law, is interesting because he was beaten up a few years before he committed suicide. You know, he, he was beaten up by Dino, the other leader of the, the Drugi, and went to live in back in Puglia um, for a year because it had been discovered that he was a he was an informant. We should talk about Dino Mocciolo, the, the the kind of historic leader of the Drugi, who served twenty years for armed robbery for for participating in an armed robbery alongside a couple of carabinieri who were perpetrating the crime and who then shot and killed a, another a policeman in their attempts to to get away. But the way that Bucci was operating also, thanks to the incredible amount of wiretaps that naturally this being Italy exist, of him and people at Juventus, really right to the, the top of Juve, it, it illustrates the way in which the ultras are indulged in return for their support, or at least to just keep them quiet. There's various phone calls where he's talking about the fact that he needs help. He calls a guy called Alessandro D'Angelo, who's the security officer for Juve or for the stadium. And he tells him, I need your help to bring in some uh, band material. Guy says, OK, fine, but as long as you don't cost me too big a fine. And it's worth it for them. And it's the same principle, I guess, for the tickets, that the cost is not the issue. The issue would be if the fans cause trouble or decide to go on strike or whatever. So at that point, Bucci's still operating for the Drugi as a kind of contact point. He later gets hired by Juventus as a supporters liaison officer. And there's various phone calls that you can hear that are all recorded with him. And then when he dies, the reaction from people within Juve talking about the fact that they they knew he was being threatened, they knew that something bad was going on. It's extraordinary the extent to which one of the biggest clubs in Europe was part of such a murky world of ticket touting and much more with the involvement, as you mentioned, of the Calabrian Mafia who'd, who'd been attracted to this uh, to the huge profits there. Yeah, it is, it is extraordinary looking back. And I think the hierarchy at Juventus realised that they'd let the wolves in but didn't know how to sort of get them out, if you like. I think they were probably naive. They thought... These are sort of scallywags who occasionally get drunk and have a punch up. And actually, if we can keep things under wraps by slipping them, a, you know, a few dozen tickets, we'll be fine. And it was only later that they realised. And actually, there's a conversation between Bucci and Angelo, who you mentioned, saying he's one of them. You know, he says in this sort of coded language, he's one of them, meaning he's a mafioso. And suddenly you can see through the conversation 
this guy, the security officer, is suddenly thinking, heck a dude, what have we actually done? What have we what have we let in? So it's sort of there are all sorts of different interpretations of this. And being Italy, you know, <laughs> there are some spectacular conspiracy theories about why there was that collusion. One of the conspiracy theories was that these ultra groups were useful for for clearing the curtilage of the new stadium that was occupied by travellers camps and that, you know, Juventus as a business wanted it to create their, you know, their museum and their health centre and their, you know, all, all the all the sort of commercial activities they wanted in the curtilage of the stadium. So the Bravi Ragazzi went with 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 truncheons and, and smashed the place to bits and they were moved on and you know, I, d- I don't really believe that the Juventus hierarchy were pointing away and saying you better go there. But conspiracy theorists think, you know, that these groups were often useful. You know, they were the they were the shock troops. They were the foot soldiers of the of the club, if you like. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, in association with FopMob. In Italy, much is made of uh, England's success in, in curbing the hooligan problem or perceived success. Uh, they often talk about il modello inglese. But Italian attempts to bring in tough measures to curb the power of the ultras are really floundered historically. The, the one exception possibly being the Tessera del Tifoso, which you, you mentioned, Tobias, the fan's identity card. In, in 2007, a young policeman, Inspettore Raciti, was, was killed in really ugly scenes um, at a Catania Palermo derby in Sicily. And at the time, it was felt this was going to be the turning point. All the matches in Serie A were suspended for a week. There were a lot of calls for strict measures. And this eventually led to the Tessera. How, how many years is it on now? How much, how much impact has that actually made? What, 13 years later, how much impact has has there been and why has it been historically so difficult to find any kind of political will to really take effective action? Yeah, the, the Tessera is one of those issues that if you mention it amongst the ultras, it's like a conversational hand grenade that you'll be there for the next 10 hours. And the reason, I mean, it, this is an example of, if you're looking at it from a law enforcement point of view, strategically absolute genius because you're then putting an ultra in an unwinnable situation. Either they do something which for them is is blasphemy, which is they have to go and be, you know, registered, approved by the state. You know, it's all against modern football, against the police state. Either you have to go and get a loyalty card from a state that gives you a barcode of approval and, you know, in brackets, those cards were also conceived as credit cards that you could spend in the club shop in some instances so it's you know part of the capitalist system and etc etc so either you go down that route or you do something else which is equally blasphemous that you can't actually go and support your team for away games or sometimes even home games because without the tessera you can't buy a ticket so you get the a movement which you know despite all its its fights and fisticuffs was actually very unified ideologically for something suddenly it's very very split and certain groups say yep we're all going to get the tessera and other groups say no we're not going to do it and within certain curve the, the terraces you get rival groups some of whom that say we're going to do it and others don't and they fight amongst themselves and of course the group that does the tessera can then take people 
on away games and say we are the true ultra groups and the others say no no we're the true ultra groups because we haven't become slaves of the state and it just it was poisonous for the whole movement um and it's sort of i think it's 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 passing now because it's being phased out but it's done its damage you mentioned sort of the the, the rejection of of the state there and i find it very interesting when if you go back, it's been a long time to the uh, the G20 or maybe it was G8 riots in uh, in Genoa, and the killing of of Carlo Giuliani, who was he was a left wing activist. Uh, there was massive rioting against uh, the the G8, and he ended up in a situation where there was a cop in a I think it was like he was like in a little police van, and Giuliani had like a stick and was like beating against the van the guy shot and killed him. And I remember the, the following weekend, the, the Lazio Ultras, had uh, uh, they had a banner up, which was weirdly very similar to their famous Arcan banner, but it was, um, you know, Onore Carlo Giuliani, Valori Diversi, which was, you know, we honor Carlo Giuliani, even though he had different values than we do, because obviously he was, you know, on, 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 on the sort of far left um, or on the anarchist left. Is this like a defining characteristic of of ultras groups whether there'd be a right-wing element or a left-wing element to them in the sense that you know you don't get sort of centrist moderate ultras who follow the rules and just shout noisily but always within uh within limits or or or, or, or i mean would something like this surprise you that 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 is actually the main driving force is it's a it's a rejection of government control yeah, absolutely. It's it's you know you couldn't have a centrist ultra. The the word means you know being an extremist really, whether that's far left or far right. But the thing that unites them is this absolute belief that the police are another ultra group that has the state on its side. That they are just as thuggish and violent. You know, I'm not repeating this because I believe it. I'm sort of summarising their rhetoric that the the police are are tooled up as much as them. They're looking for a, for a for a fight, and I'm afraid, you know, there are many many instances, as you know, of of ultra violence leading to fatalities. But it's also true that there have been, you know, lots of examples of police brutality leading to fatalities, and the ultras will always give you the other side of the coin. Mm. And that's that's why I think the response to to the Sandri killing, James, you mentioned the the killing of the the police inspector in Catania. In, in 2007, so about eight months after that, Gabriele Sandri, a Lazio fan, was was killed by a sort of, you know, trigger-happy guy at a petrol station. And the response to that... Yeah, yeah, um, I think he was a traffic policeman. Um, the response to that w- was interesting because it showed, again, that, that football really isn't the central aspect of being an ultra. The reason that Liboccia... Um, you know, Claudio Atalanta and his guys kicked in the perspex in Bergamo to stop the game was because they said, actually, you know, there's something more sacred than football in that, that actually we need to stop the game because a guy has died. And it's an, an example of, they say, police brutality and that if we stop football for the police inspector, we need to do the same for Sandri. And it's it's exactly the same. What what Ibocha was saying then was almost identical to the rhetoric that a lot of Juventus ultras were saying, you know, minutes after the Heisel tragedy, is 
we shouldn't be playing this game. You know, there's something more sacred than football. So, so the ultras are then sort of proposing themselves as, as the high priests of football. They're saying, you know, mm. it's become so much big business. Um, again, I'm paraphrasing the rhetoric. I'm not sort of saying I agree with it, but they are, they are saying it's not about money. It's not about sport. It's about human life. We understand this. I think it's a really important point because we've highlighted some of the really scandalous uh, stories, the likes of uh, Diabolic or Bucin, Chirin, uh, some of the really uh, awful cases of violence. But beyond all of that, they also regard themselves as defending the real values of the sport from the in- increasingly monetized modern game. And it's, it's worth pointing out that beyond that, there's also a completely different reality for most ultras to the ones we've talked about, the Bucis and the the uh, Pisitelli's, because for most ultras, their life is one of, uh, or the ultra life is one of long hours, no thanks, and unbelievable uh, dedication to the cause. And the result of that is the incredible tifo, the choreographia that we see that is so much of what makes culture special. Well, I was fascinated when we started this discussion in episode one where, Tobias, you said that uh, one of the things that really captures your imagination about the ultras, but more generally, is this kind of community, these these groups that that form for whatever reason. In the ultras case, you see it in crises like the ones we're going through at the moment, their ability to mobilize and be very kind of vertical in, look, this has happened, we can do this, let's go about and do it. And it's, it's striking, even if you just Google ultras, I don't know, an ospedale or something like that, hospital or emergency, to see not just the kind of the ultra groups that we are most familiar with, but groups like Cavese or Casetana, you know, right down the football pyramid, um, in some respects, even allying with fellow ultra groups in Germany to send goods across back and forth, whatever, you know, be it PPE or whatever, that ability to mobilize in a way that I think very few community groups these days can is something that I find quite striking, um, in t- particularly in a kind of more atomized, fractured society that we live in, in in 2020. Yeah, it's interesting. The mayor of Aquila, you know, a few years after that terrible earthquake, said the ultras have done more for, for my town than the Italian state ever did. And so it's partly, I think, the perennial problem of the absence of the Italian state, that it hasn't always been able to to deal with emergencies as its citizens have hoped. And so you get this sort of ground up autonomous movement. And it's exactly true what, what you say, James, isn't it? That, you know, when there are, I don't know, the, the mudslides in, in Genoa, the floods, an earthquake, disease, the ultras are present. And it's it's very interesting that they actually and this is something i was trying to do in the book is they involve a lot of vulnerable people so if you look all through the decades so many of the the young lads who were drawn into ultra groups most of them lots of them didn't have a father they often didn't have a mother either so they sort of they didn't have a family at all they had no sense of belonging or rootedness and they found it in the in the ultra group and of course if you find a family you're going to defend it but you're also going to sort of try and extend that canopy as wide as you can to your own suburb or community and it's 
the reason I sometimes struggle talking about all the, the dark stuff, I love true crime as much as the next man, but I sort of, it's often not a fair representation of the ultra movement because they are, you know, it, it was ultras who organised the, the first anti-racist World Cup in the late 90s um, near here in Emilia-Romagna. They founded, you know, General and Sampdoria ultras came together to create a cooperative called Genoa Together. You know, the list is endless. It's not unproblematic because, you know, we've seen in the last few days here in Italy, the mafia has been giving out, you know, food packages and and and, and cash envelopes as a form of territorial control and conquest. So, you know, I know it's not unproblematic, be naive to think this was sort of entirely altruistic generosity, but on the whole it is. And that's that I find that really interesting. How do you see it with him? Because I'm, I'm often struck, I watch a lot of uh, uh, German football in the Bundesliga, and there's a supporter movement there is a little bit different, but there's often a ton of overlap. There's often uh, relationships between supporter groups there and, and, and ultra, ultras groups in, in Italy. You often see you know, banners from Italian ultras groups pop up in the Bundesliga games and, and sometimes vice versa. And the, there's... You know that that line which which came up originally in Italy, you know, no al calcio moderno against modern football was certainly taken on and taken almost to to a next level in in Germany, where the football is certainly feels less commercial and maybe they have also better governance and less crooks owning football clubs. But can you just talk a little bit about that and whether there's a parallel? I mean, we saw, for example, in in England after the Glazer takeover a whole bunch of Manchester United fans who said enough is enough we've had enough about you know with with the commercialization we want to be able to to drink beer in our seats we don't want the Glazers and they went off and they formed their own club right FC United can you just talk a little bit about that how much of it whether this really is a a reaction against kickoff times and against what they consider in glossy modern football or whether this is just simply another way of of being non-conformist, like whether that's genuine. Yeah, I, I think personally it is genuine. I think it's I think it's one of the deepest sort of philosophical strands of the ultra movement. And there are lots of things there. One is, you know, Italians are famous for their sort of esterophilia, their love of all things foreign. So if you go there and say, I'm an Everton fan, I'm from, you know, Hertha Berlin or whatever, they're just fascinated to know all about the clubs and the colours and the chants. Italian ups tend to be very open to to foreign fan movements and and songs and and habits. But, you know, what I notice increasingly, not just in Serie A, but going to a lot of Serie B, Serie C games, is the attendances here are are minuscule. You know, I went to to a game in Brescia a while ago, you know, big, big historic club, and there was Tonali playing, one of the most exciting, you know, emerging Italian talents in the midfield. Reminded me a bit of Frank Lampard, you know, great player. And there were only, I think, 6,000 people in the stadium. So I think that's, um, that shows a sort of a genuine disaffection with the modern game in Italy for all sorts of reasons. And the ultras, one of the most interesting things, I think, in, in, in the ultra movement is the way in which lots of them have, just as you said, like the Manchester supporters, have peeled off and formed their own clubs. So Calcio Popolare, you know, there's a famous example of a club in in uh, in Florence called the Big Lebowski. There's Calcio Popolare in Palermo. There, there are all these... Cosenza's got its own 
Brutium Cosenza, the Son in Bari, that they're all over the place. They're popping up and it's sort of taking football back to its roots and its origins. And, you know, the sporting prowess isn't anything like, obviously, what it would be like in professional football, but the human social side is is something very different. So, you know, they put their money where their mouth is. Tobias, when you decided to write this book, you presumably had an idea of ultras and their significance, their role in, in football and society. What What's the biggest thing that you learned in the course of spending time with them? Um, oh, lots. I mean, they all sound kind of obvious. now. <laughs> you know, once you've been through the process for a few years and you reel off your discoveries, they're all very obvious. But, I mean... I assumed they were football fanatics. And like I said, most of them actually aren't that interested in the football. In fact, quite a lot of them were quite annoyed when I turned to them and say, you know, who scored the goal? You know, why are you asking this? Who cares? You know, I think the charitable aspect was completely unexpected. I thought, you know, they they were sort of a pretty rum crowd and, and they were revealed to be something very different. But also the fact that there's almost this almost idolatrous way through the decades in which the group having worshipped the players then starts to worship actually the club and then the club colours and then the suburb or the city or whatever it is and then it starts worshipping itself and that's when it becomes really dangerous you know I've I've sort of you probably know I I founded a couple of communities lived in a community for 10 years I know a lot about communal living and group dynamics and I've been a leader and a non-leader. And so I sort of went into it with this sort of head on thinking what's going on in these groups. And when you see the object of veneration becoming the group itself and the leader, that's when it becomes sort of fascinating and very powerful in possibly good ways or dark ways. So what do you think the future is? If they are involved in this this fight against the modern game, if they are involved in a fight against an unarmed group, the police that are trying to repress them, what is the future? Can, is it a sustainable thing, the ultra movement? Well, I mean, the older generation all said to me, it's over, it's finished. You know, anyone who had been there in the the 80s or earlier said to me, this is just it's nothing like what we were doing, you know. Because it doesn't to... seem like it's over. I mean, if you look in the last couple of years, you had the death of a Varese fan outside San Siro and those clashes between Inter and Napoli supporters. You had the extraordinary uh, case just a couple of months ago, February 2020, when uh, Bari and Lecce fans basically closed off a three-lane motorway on midday on mm-hmm. a Sunday for a kind of massive set-to. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't seem like it's dying out. No, not in terms of newsworthy events, but I think the the old guard would say things like, you know, in the 80s, we used to take 20,000 people on trains to an away game and you'd be these oceanic transfers. And now it'll be, you know, two dozen or maybe 200 so that the numbers are in sharp decline. I mean, it's, you know, it's very tenacious and it's it's been going for 50 years, so I'm sure it will keep going. I just think it's sort of peeling off into two different directions. One is it becomes ever more paramilitary and normally uh, neo-fascist, or it peels off in the other way, which is uh, we're taking this radicalism and idealism out into the streets and we're going to occupy you know, hotels and give them to immigrants. And we are going to, you know, all the idealistic stuff that they're doing in Cosenza and loads of other cities. So I think it's sort of 
it's peeling off in those two different directions. It's it's evolving, but it's it's you know the numbers compare the numbers now to what they had in the in the eighties, and it's there's no comparison. It's interesting with the numbers because obviously overall over the last couple of seasons attendances in Serie A have have risen. You're seeing sixty thousand plus at the San Siro for both Milan and Inter, watching a very bad team, uh, or historically underachieving team, I should say. But um, I'm wondering, is there a parallel with you know the is it Professor Putnam, the, the thing that people always bring up about how he looked at uh, was bowling leagues and, and bowling attendances, and he found that people were bowling as much in the, whenever he wrote the study, I guess the 80s or 90s, as they did in the 50s, but the difference is that back then, everybody was bowling in a bowling league with, with friends and organization and community, and now people were, were bowling alone. Is that an apt comparison? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I, I think that's absolutely key, Gabriele. It's just because there's this sort of, I don't know, what do you belong to now? You know, if you have the the huge, you know, Italy had this huge communist party that was organising these huge events. There was political affiliation. There was religious affiliation. You know, what of that is left in society? And the ultra say, we're almost the last place where you can get that sense of, brotherhood, belonging, and it, and it is, you know, I, I just got a little taste of it really over a few years of this sense of euphoria of being in a group in which you're all singing the same songs, doing the same gestures, doing the same things when you're walking through a, an inverted commas foreign city with two or three hundred of your brothers and you know you might get attacked and you might be attacked and they might have to defend you or you might have to defend them. The bonds that that creates and the excitement and the euphoria and the adrenaline. And where else do you get that? You know, if, if we live these sort of atomized, isolated lives, it is a lot of the metaphor they all use. They all say it's addictive. You know, it's a drug. I just need it. And that's not just the violence. It's that sort of bonding with other human beings. I think it, it was quite interesting what um, Tobias was saying about how how disaffected some ultras are because you know when you look at uh, attendances as gab was talking about um, earlier going up there's there's long been this idea that once italian football gets the infrastructure uh, if you build it they will come and yet we're not really seeing that at um, let's say at clubs that have either refurbished have made their stadia better to go and watch football in or just hang out at yeah, be they Udinese, as Tobias was saying. I don't know whether you went to Brescia when they just kind of renovated the stadium a little bit, made one of the stands nicer, and yet they're not full houses. Um, it's not just because the football's not as good as it once was when, you know, in Brescia's case, you had Georgie Hadji and Pep Guardiola and, uh, and Roberto Baggio there. There's just a general kind of withdrawal from it or there are more things competing for our interests these these days and not just those of ultras either it's it's interesting the the ultras often get blamed for the falling attendance that you know presidents and and you know football authorities who are there the reason attendance is falling because people think they're going to have a sort of a, a rough violent experience um what's interesting is what happens to the i mean i went to some weird lovely places like teramo and fermo and ancona where you know, lots of them have these new stadiums. What's really interesting is when they move to a new stadium, what happens to the old stadium? And it becomes this sort of sacred graveyard. 
that the ultras will not allow anyone to build on it. So you go to Tenema, it's the middle of the city, and it's it's just there with all these sort of, you know, spray painted memories. It's yeah, it's really interesting. It's like you see it in Torino, don't you? You see it in all these old sacred stadia. Well, it is an unbelievably deep subject, but thank you so much, Tobias, for being with us today. If, if, if you're interested, listener, in, in, in further reading on this subject, of course, Tim Parks is a season with Verona, uh, has some fascinating insight into that uh, infamous uh, group of Tifosi. But your book, Tobias, Ultra, published by Head of Zeus, is available, of course, as an ebook, an audiobook, and a satisfyingly uh, chunky hardback as well. And it's an, an excellent read, uh, marrying as it does both historical detail of the uh, the many crazy stories of ultras and their, their influence, but also hands-on experience with the people down in Cosenza. What are you going to be up to next? Well, I'm writing a book about the River Po, Italy's longest river, and I'm doing it against the currents. I'm going from the delta to the source. Uh, my hope had been to get to the source just at the end of the school term so I could take the kids up there with a you know nice big tent and go to Monviso. But, uh, yeah, that's the next book. And it's really interesting because it goes through some – there are one or two places with some really interesting sort of sporting – stuff you know two world cup winners from the 1930s came from the same village in piemonte and stuff like that that i'm sort of picking up these little stories excellent all right well thank you for being with us today thanks as well to gabriele marcotti and james horncastle we'll see you guys soon on another golazzo until then from all of us here listener it's arrivederci You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Muddy Knees Media.